Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. If you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to John, John chapter 13. Uh, but before we, we read it and get into the Word, let, let's pray. Our hearts are heavy. Um, this week, the, the tragedy that happened in Texas. And so let us take a moment and ask the Lord to, to show up in that very dark space, to comfort the family of the victims. Ask the Lord to somehow in this very dark season to make himself known. Lord, we thank you that you are God and we are not, that you are sovereign and that you are in control of everything, that you're not some distant, impersonal being, but you are personal, you make yourself known, and that you are active in creation, for you hold everything together, you rule and sustain everything. And Lord, in, in the midst of just darkness, help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us to faithfully point people to you, knowing that you are coming back to make all things new, where you will destroy Satan's sin and death once and for all. And all the brokenness and all the wrong in the world will be made right. And this is what our hope is in. For you have defeated death, you have defeated sin, and you've defeated Satan. And so in this time, help us to trust you, help us to look to you, help us to rest in you. And Lord, as we open up your word, can you speak to us? Can you help us to be captivated by you? As we look at this act of humility, as you wash the disciples' feet, can we just see the glory in that? Can we just see this beautiful picture of the gospel? And may it stir in our hearts to respond in faith as we follow this example that you've given us not to obtain something, but because we've already received what you've given to us. So come, Lord, and speak. Holy Spirit, open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our minds. Convict us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in, in John chapter 13, verse 1 to 17, as we're continuing our series through the gospel of John. Now again, 
what John is trying to show us is that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And the way he does it is by showing us, first of all, how Jesus revealed his glory, and then also how Jesus is going to receive glory from the Father. And his ultimate purpose in writing this book is not just to prove a point, but rather to invite you in to come and to believe in the name of Jesus so that you may have life in his name. Now, we're at this part of the Gospel of John where the hour of Jesus has has come. And last week we saw how Jesus' soul was troubled. And yet in his anguish, he was unwavering in his commitment to the Father's will and to the Father's glory. And so in his prayer, the Lord speaks in a loud voice and says, I have glorified it throughout the ministry of Jesus. And again, he's confirming that he is going to glorify it at the climactic hour of the cross. And really what we see is a picture of the glorification of the Son. And Jesus says that when the Son is glorified, now is the time for judgment of this world. Now is the time for the ruler of this world to be driven out, to be dethroned, to be defeated. And as Jesus will be lifted up on a cross, but also exalted, he will draw all men without distinction to himself. And yet we see the crowd... Despite all of the signs, all the miracles, all the teaching with authority that Jesus taught, we saw how the crowd continued in their unbelief. And even those who did believe, in a sense, feared more of what man thought about them and wanted the praise of man than what God thought about him and wanting the praise of God. And and Jesus stands up with one more declaration, inviting people to call upon his name. And then he hid himself from the crowd until again he will be revealed in the cross. Now, we're getting in the section of John in the next five chapters. So from John 13 all the way to John 17, Jesus continues in his ministry. But not to the crowd, not to Jerusalem, but now to the ministry of his disciples. Because what Jesus is doing in a sense is he knows that his death is near. He knows the confusion is going to create for his disciples. He knows the pain of his departure that is going to cause. And now is the time for him to prepare his disciples for what is coming. And in a sense, what do these disciples need in order to be prepared when Jesus dies and when Jesus leaves them? The same thing that every disciple needs throughout every generation. Not some inspirational speech, not some pep talk, but rather they need an understanding of the gospel. And in a sense, they need to experience the gospel. And so in the next five chapters, this is what we're going to see happening. Jesus is spending time with his disciples before his departure. And throughout it, he's constantly trying to give them an understanding of a gospel, a picture of the gospel, so that they may experience it. And this is even what we see when Jesus washes his disciples' feet in this act of humility. So as we looked at this act of humility, let's see through the lenses of the gospel. Let's see the picture that he shows us of the gospel as the disciples are experiencing the gospel. John 13, verse 1. It says, Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, this verse is important because what it does is it sets the scene. 
Notice in verse 1, there's a word that appears twice in verse 1, the word world. And what we're going to see over the next five chapters, this word world is going to appear over 40 times. And so if you study the Bible, a little principle is if you see a word that's constantly appearing throughout the text, what does that mean? That means it's somewhat important to us. We need to pay attention to it. And what this is happening, what Jesus is saying, or what John is saying in this word world, is that the word world is going to draw a sharp contrast between Jesus' disciples, those who belong to him, and the rest of lost humanity, those who belong to the world. And we know that in John 3, 16, for God loved the world, yet what does he do to it? He draws men and women out of the world to himself. And when he draws them out of the world to himself, in a sense, he makes them new and he gives them a new identity. And then he sets them up, in a sense, against the world. And where the world loves its own, the world loves darkness and hates the light. And it hates Jesus. And eventually Jesus is going to teach his disciples that the world is going to do what towards you? They're going to hate you. Why? Because they have hated me. And as the world loves its own, Jesus loves his own. And what we see is that the object of this love in our passage, the love that Jesus has, is not towards this world, but rather towards his own. Towards those he has drawn out of this world that belongs to him, the people of God. And so Jesus, John tells us that Jesus says this, uh, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So in other words, Jesus loved his disciples to the end. Like, what does it mean that he loved them to the end? I think there's two options for us, or maybe three options. The first option, loving to the end, can refer to the length of his love, that he loved them to the point of his departure when he breathed his last breath and he died. Or it can also refer to the depths of his love, where he loved them with everything he had, And I think option number three is it can possibly be both. The length and the depth, which I think is probably more accurate. Either way, whether it's length or depth, Jesus is going to display his unfailing love for his own in this moving scene where he humbles himself in the form of the lowliest of servants and he washes their feet. In other words, performing a task, the menial task of the lowliest servant. So let's take a closer look at this act of humility in verse 2. So having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to, it, to the end. Verse 2 says this, Now, when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from the supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel tied around him. So if you're taking notes, the very first act of humility and what it shows if you're taking notes is this is a display of love. 
In other words, Jesus' act of humility, first of all, is a display of love. And the first thing that, that John wants to do is he wants to remind us, the readers, so that we can understand the loving character of Jesus by reminding us of two things. The first thing he wants to remind us by showing us the loving character of Jesus is that whose feet did Jesus wash? He washed all of his disciples' feet, including who? Judas, the one who has already made up his mind, plotting to betray Jesus. Jesus goes ahead and washes his feet. Judas has already made up his mind that he is going to betray Jesus and he's just simply waiting for the right opportunity. And so John wants to remind us, look at this loving character of Jesus. He washes his disciples' feet, including the one that's going to betray him. But then the second thing John reminds us of is who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Jesus knew that his time had come. He knew that he is going to leave this world and he's going to return back to the Father and that the Father had put all things under his authority and under his power. And really what we see is a vivid picture between the contrast between Judas and Jesus. Here is Judas who is self-serving, waiting for an opportunity to betray a friend for 30 pieces of silver. And what does Jesus do? Self-giving humbling himself and washing the feet of his disciples. Now, you would think that if one person has so much power and authority and status that's at Jesus' disposal, you might expect him to defeat the devil with an immediate overpowering confrontation and then just annihilate Judas with some divine blast of wrath and just call it over. But that's not what Jesus does. Instead, he humbles himself. He takes off his outer garment, takes a towel, wraps it around his waist, gets on his knees, and he washes their feet. Why? Because he loved them. And he loved them to the end. Now, we're not given a ton of description of the scene and what I don't want to do is kind of speculate and add more details because I don't think that's important because if John didn't give us a ton of details that meant there was a purpose but but I want you a little bit to picture what's going on here the disciples are reclining on thin mats at a low seating table each leaning on his arm with their feet pointing out more than likely leaning on the left arm, feet pointing out. Jesus, he, he pushes himself off of his mat. He takes off his outer garment. He takes a towel. He wraps it around his waist, and he takes a basin, and he fills it up with water, and then he stops by every disciple, and he starts to wash their feet. Now, for the disciples, this moment is both extremely unthinkable and embarrassing. It's unthinkable in a sense that they could not even perceive washing one another's feet. Unthinkable in a sense that no respectable Jewish man should wash anybody's feet. And Jews even believe you shouldn't even make a Jewish slave wash somebody else's feet. That this task is reserved for the lowliest of lowliest of servants, maybe the Gentiles. And even then, don't make him do it. And here, who is Jesus their master, 
was doing the most unthinkable thing, and you can imagine how embarrassing it is. They're so embarrassed that they have nothing to say. Like, what will you do when all of a sudden somebody just comes and takes your shoes off and start washing your feet? And in our culture, like, that's not a big deal. But in that culture, like, that's just unthinkable. That's embarrassing. And they're so embarrassed that they have no idea what to say. All they could hear was the water being poured out into a basin and Jesus washing their feet. And Jesus, adopting the dress of a menial slave, a dress that was looked down upon by both Jews and Gentiles, he begins to wash their feet as he displays his love for them. And John wants to remind us that this act of humility wasn't because Jesus was trying to get into their good books. He wasn't trying to get their acceptance. But what does John remind us of? First of all, he reminds us of who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? He came from God. And where is he going? He's going back to God. And all power and all authority has been given to him. And it's with that mindset that he humbles himself and he washes their feet. Because he loved them. And for most of the disciples, they were so embarrassed that they couldn't say a word until one disciple spoke up, and his name was Peter, and he objected. Look at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. And here's his objection, you will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who is bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he's completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, I had a really hard time to kind of think through Peter's objection, because on one hand, we think about Peter's objection, and we think, what a noble objection with good intentions. But here's the reality of his objection. Hopefully, I can explain it in a way that you can understand it. His objection wasn't noble, wasn't with good intentions. His objection was ignorant, foolish, and even self-destructive. And yet Jesus expects Peter to submit to the washing of his feet in faith. And as the disciples did not really fully understand that the Messiah had to go to the cross, they couldn't really understand what this foot washing symbolized and anticipated. What, what Peter is thinking about, Peter is thinking uh, about what is appropriate socially. He's thinking through earthly lenses, worldly lenses. Because in his mind he's thinking, important people, rabbis, teachers, they do not serve, but they are the ones who are being served. Powerful people don't die, but rather they use their power for self-preservation. People with authority do not surrender, but rather use their authority to oppress others so that others would surrender to them. And Peter's like, you're not going to wash my feet. But before we look about Peter's response and show you how foolish it is, I want us to go back to again what was the meaning of this act of humility. And if this act of humility 
was only a display of God's love, think about how foolish Jesus' response to Peter was. Look at how, how, how Jesus responds to Peter in verse 8. When Peter says, you'll never wash my feet, what does Jesus say? If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, this foot washing was more than just a display of love because if it was only a display of love, Jesus' comment can almost be interpreted as in this way. Peter, I command you to let me humble myself and show you how much I love you. And if you're not going to let me do it, I'm just going to fire you and get rid of you. Like that, that sounds silly and foolish. And what we have to understand is that this foot washing was more than just Jesus displaying his love. But if you're taking notes, the second thing what this foot washing symbolized is that this act of humility was a symbol of saving cleansing. It is a symbol of saving cleansing. In other words, this act of humility wasn't just a display of Jesus' love towards his disciples, but it was also a symbol of saving cleansing. Let me help you understand this. Because when Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me, what he's basically implying is this that unless the Lamb of God has taken away a person's sin, has washed that person, he or she can have no part with me. And the notion of have no part with me has to do with an inheritance. In other words, without the washing or the cleansing, there is no inheritance. And what Peter does is Peter, in his adamant refusal to demonstrate his, 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 his uh, submission to the Lord, he says, not only like, like, don't just wash my feet, but go ahead and wash my head and also my hands. So, so what is Peter doing here in his first refusal and then in his second objection? Think about the symbolism of foot washing. First of all, it was a display of God's love, of Jesus' love for his disciples. Second of all, it was a symbol of saving cleansing. In a moment, I'm going to explain to you the foot washing did not make him clean, but rather it symbolized the cleansing work that's going to take place. So when Peter is objecting to Jesus washing his feet, what is he really objecting to? In a sense, what he is doing, first of all, when he says, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet, in a sense, he's saying, I do not need you to cleanse me. I can take care of it on my own. You can clean everybody else. Don't worry about me. So in a sense, what is he refusing? He is refusing God's grace in his life. And so in a sense, that is a response to many people towards the gospel. Jesus, it's great that you've done it for everybody else, but you really don't need to do it for me. I can go ahead and and wash my own feet. I can go ahead and do my own cleansing. What is that? That's pride. That's arrogance. And what Jesus is saying, look, unless I'm washing you, you can have no part with me. In other words, you won't inherit a thing because you cannot wash yourself. You cannot make yourself clean. Only I can make you clean. And what this foot washing, even though you don't understand it, you're going to understand it in the future. What it ultimately is pointing to is my blood that will atone for all of your sins and that will wash you as white as snow and make you clean. 
And this is what I mean by how Peter's response to, 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 to Jesus wasn't with good intentions, but was foolish and ignorant and self-destructive because what he is saying is, I don't need your grace. I don't need your cleansing. I can do it on my own. And then he goes from that extreme to the opposite extreme. And when Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you will have no share in me, what does he say then? On the opposite end, he's like, well, don't just wash my feet, wash my hands and my head, wash every part of me. What does he mean by that? In other words, what he is saying is, well, then I don't think this washing is sufficient for me. In other words, I need you to do more than just this foot. I need you to wash everything. This blood might not cover me. I need more than your blood to cover all of me. And both, in a sense, is unbelief. The first unbelief is, I don't need it, I can do it. The second unbelief is, I don't think it is sufficient for me. Both is a rejection. Both is unbelief. Both is foolish, ignorant, and self-destructive. And Jesus continues a little bit basically in his analogy and says, look, if you've taken a bath, you're basically clean, but from time to time, your feet need to be washed from the dusty roads. But then after Jesus washed their feet, what does he say? He declares them to be what? He declares them to be clean. Except who? Except Judas. Now, this is the foot washing. Doesn't make you clean. Why? Because whose feet was washed? Judas's feet was washed. And yet, did Jesus declare him clean? No. He remained unclean. So in other words, the foot washing symbolized the saving cleansing. The actual foot washing did not make you clean. Because then Judas would have been clean. But what it symbolized and what it anticipated is the cleansing that Jesus would accomplish on the cross. His blood will be shed for you once and for all. And it is something that you receive. And when you receive it, Jesus declares you to be clean. It is something you receive by faith. And so the foot washing pointed to the notion of cleaning, for it is at the cross where the ultimate cleansing of his blood will take place. And this is what the foot washing pointed to. And then he turns around after he declares them clean, even after Peter and his foolishness of unbelief, Jesus declares him clean. He says, do you know what I've done for you? Look at, look at verse, verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clo clothing, he reclined and said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? No, they didn't. Verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you're speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should all you." also should do as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is no, not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. 
So in other words, if we look at this, this act of humility was a display of Jesus' love for his disciples. This act of humility was a symbol of saving cleansing. And the third one, if you're taking notes, this act of humility is a model of Christian conduct. In other words, this humility of Christ was a pattern for his disciples. Jesus is saying, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now, people take this literally, and what they do is they think that maybe that the foot washing should be institutionalized with that of the other sacraments or, or ordinances like baptism and communion. But here's why I don't think it should be institutionalized and we shouldn't take it literally because nowhere else in the New Testament does it treat foot washing with that of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And what is the heart of Jesus' command? Humility. The heart of his command is to humble yourself, serve your brothers and sisters. And the point that Jesus is making in the conduct of his disciples, is to walk in humility. For how did Christ walk? He humbled himself. And then Jesus drives home the point in verse 16, no messenger has the right to think he's exempt from the task cheerfully undertaken by the one who sent him. No slave has the right to judge any menial task beneath him after his master has already performed it. And then Jesus gives them the final instruction. He says, you know these things, but don't let it be just an intellectual thing. Let it become a practical thing. If you do these things, if you humble yourself and you serve one another, you will be blessed. It reminds me, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Romans. The instructions that Paul gives, Romans chapter 12, verse 9. After Paul writes to the church, the churches in Rome, and he kind of gives them a wonderful proclamation of the gospel, he says, here's your instruction. In other words, in light of the gospel, because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you as he humbled himself on the cross and he cleansed you by his blood, this is how you ought to conduct yourself. Let love be without hypocrisy, verse 9. Detest evil, cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters outdo one another in showing honor do not lack diligence and zeal be fervent in spirit serve the Lord rejoice in hope be patient in affliction be persistent in prayer share with the saints in their needs pursue hospitality bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse rejoice with those who rejoice weep with those who weep live in harmony with one another do not be proud instead associate with the humble do not be wise in your own estimation do not repay anyone evil for evil give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes and it keeps going on and what is Paul saying what kind of life are we supposed to live in light of what Christ has done for us a life of humility now let's wrap it up and and talk about application here think about this here What's happening in our text? Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. He's preparing them 
for what is happening and the pain and the struggles that they're going to face when he leaves them. And what do they need? What do the disciples need? They need the gospel. They need to understand it. In a sense, they need to experience it. And how does Jesus demonstrate the gospel in visible form? He, who came from God, who's going to return to God, who has all authority, who has all power, he humbles himself to the point of death on a cross. He dies for them because of his love for the Father and he loves in his love for them. And his blood cleanses them and he declares them clean because of the work that he has accomplished on the cross. And then he invites them in to say, cling to it, believe in it, that you need it, and that it's sufficient for you. And then because of that, you model it by walking in humility. You see, the the call of Jesus, the call that we've seen throughout the Gospel of John is a call to believe and a call to follow. A call to believe in what Jesus has done is needed and sufficient. And what John kind of showed us through the picture of both Judas and Peter is how not to respond. Because what did Peter do? I don't need it. Well, maybe I need it, but I need it to be more than just that. And what Jesus is saying is, No, you need it, and what I've done for you is sufficient. Do you cling to it? Can you believe it? Can you trust in it? And then in light of that faith, it works itself out in following Jesus after you've believed in Jesus and humbling yourself and serving others, knowing the example that he showed you because of the cleansing work that he's done on your behalf. And so the call to Jesus is a call to believe, a call to follow, a call to come to him for cleansing, a call to come to him and believe that the cleansing of what he's done is sufficient, a call to follow him in the way that he walked, a call to humility and radical service, not to earn the love of God, but as a response to the love of God that was demonstrated already to you on the cross of Christ. And what the text does, really the text confronts us, because if we have to be honest, even in our time of confession and assurance, what does this, what did the text remind us of in our confession? What kind of people are we if we have to be honest? We're prideful people. We're self-centered people. We always think that I'm the exception to the rule, that I can do more than that. I can do better than that. Like for anyone, would would anybody identify themselves as Judas? Let's just be honest. Judas and Peter, we're all like thinking, well, technically I won't do it, but the reality of it is we are that. And that's what the gospel confronts us of because we are people that are prideful and selfish. We push against any service that we think is below us. And what does Jesus do? He shows us a better way, the way of the Father. 
He shows us and teaches us that service and humility is both holy and sacred, and it is the only response to the gospel. And then he says, go and do it. And in a sense, also, he shows us that the kingdom of God is kind of like upside down. It confronts all of our values. It's a kingdom of humility, a kingdom of service, kingdom of radical transformation through humbling ourselves and our call to worship i'm done i just want to read this text paul writes to the church in philippi and we did it in our, our call to worship philippians 2 verse 5 it says adopt the same attitude as that of christ jesus who existing in the form of god did not consider equality with god as something to be exploited Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Verse 9. As Christ humbled himself, for this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The way to glory, the way to life is humility and suffering. And what Jesus is inviting his disciples to do, walk in that way. How do we know it's going to work out? Jesus, the first fruits, he humbled himself. He walked in suffering on his way to glory. And now he's exalted above every name. And at the end of the day, regardless of men and women are going to confess him, they will confess him. That he is Lord. But let me pray for us and then we get sit at the table. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for the great love that you have for us, that you sent your Son who took on flesh, who walked on this earth, who was so obedient to your will, who humbled himself even to the humiliating, excruciating pain of the cross and yet through the cross through the apparent defeat and the death of Jesus he obtained victory accomplished our salvation by his blood he cleansed us Lord help us to see the sufficient work of Christ help us to see our need for cleansing Help us to see how Christ is exalted above every name. There's no one higher than Jesus. And this is why at the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So help us to respond in faith 
as we recognize our need for cleansing, help us to respond in faith so that we don't turn to ourselves for cleansing, that we believe that the sufficiency of the cleansing that you have done for us, Lord Jesus, is enough, that your cleansing work on the cross have covered all of our sins, past, present, and future. And a response to the cleansing work, help us to walk in humility as we humble ourselves before you and receive this gift of salvation by faith. But humble ourselves before others as we serve others, as we lay down our lives. For our life belongs to you. As we continue to pray, um, I don't know you and I don't know what you're going through, but I do know that Jesus does know you and he knows everything that you're going through. And the Lord just just hit me with, with Peter's response. And I do think for many of you, you might be like Peter. In a sense, you're thinking, I, I don't really need this. I can do it myself. And Jesus just in a loving way reminds Peter and he's reminding you, no, you can't. You need my cleansing because without my cleansing, you can have no part in me. There is no inheritance. There's no life. There's only death. And I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you, humble yourself before the Lord. Admit you need cleansing and ask him to clean you. And then for some of you, you know you need cleansing, but you're thinking, man, I am just way too dirty for just a little foot washing. I need a whole lot more. And Jesus, in the most loving way, is saying, no, you don't, for my blood is sufficient. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. My blood has covered all of your sins, past, present, and even future. Look to me, trust in me, believe in me that what I've done for you is sufficient. And then for some of you, as you're looking to Christ, maybe you have a hard time to humble yourself. Maybe there's some pride that you're wrestling with. And what a beautiful picture that Christ shows us. Then he tells us, go do likewise. For if you humble yourself, there's life. There's blessing. What the word blessing means, there's happiness, there's joy. Why? Because somehow in the kingdom of God, in order to obtain life, you don't have to take it for yourself. You give it up. In order to have joy, you don't have to chase after it. It's just surrender. Die to self. And so for some of you, Jesus is inviting you. Remind yourself, humble yourself, die to self as you look to me, as you trust in me. And what a beautiful picture he even gives us as we get to the table. As the foot washing pointed to the atoning work that Christ will accomplish on the cross, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper does it in such a beautiful picture. For it's at this table we are reminded that we've been cleansed by his work, 
and that his work was sufficient for his body was given to us his blood was shed for us and when we eat it and when we're drinking it it is a reminder for us as we're looking at it as we're tasting it as we're smelling it as we're declaring that Jesus died for me and what he's done for me is enough and I can have assurance in the salvation he has accomplished for me I can rest in the salvation that he has achieved that he has declared me clean and righteous in his sight and so in my fight against sin and my struggles in this world I can humble myself and rest in him trusting him that I am clean not because of my performance my behavior but he has declared me clean because what he's done for me on the cross what a glorious joy what a glorious hope and so for some of you this is what you need to be reminded of in your fight against sin in your struggle in this world as you kill pride and you walk in humility Let's go ahead and distribute these elements and use this time to reflect on this glorious truth, to humble yourself, to repent, and to believe in King Jesus. How precious is the blood of Jesus that it is sufficient enough to cover all of the most heinous sins committed by man throughout history. It is sufficient enough to take us who were filthy rags and wash us as white as snow to take all of our sins past present and future and to atone for it once and for all for when Jesus died what did he say it is finished and so in your fight against sin in your wrestling at times when you're losing sight, keep your eyes on Jesus. Be reminded that his body was given to you. Eat it, feast on it as you cling to him. Take it and eat it. Be reminded of his blood that was shed for you, the new covenant that you have. Drink it as you feast on it, as you trust him in it. And take time right now to thank the Lord for it and ask him to help you to cling to it, to trust it, to rest in it. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Lord, even though we will never comprehend the price that you have paid, we may never comprehend the preciousness of your blood, the sufficiency of your atonement. Lord, but can you help us somehow be in awe of it? Can you stir our hearts and our affections? Can you help us to be captivated? And in our fight and in our struggle of sin and unbelief, can you help us to fix our eyes on you? In our pride when we think we can clean ourselves and when we turn to self to get ourselves out of the mess, can you help us to humble ourselves and look to you, to trust in you? Can you help us to walk in humility? Can you help us to follow your example and serve others and not cling to our rights, 
not cling to self-preservation, but lay down our lives, pick up our cross and follow you. For this is the way of life. This is the way you've marked out for us. This is the way towards glory. And you're coming back to glorify us, to raise us up in glory as we will inherit the kingdom of God. Help us in this journey. Help us in this race. Help us in this fight. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Can we stand and can we worship our King?